Well, I'm delighted and I feel very honored to have been asked by the Mind Association to be its president for the forthcoming year and in that role to give this address. And it's a particular pleasure for me to be in Cambridge, where, as David says, I did my graduate work. Um, I should say that in the role of president, the role of president is made very much easier than it might be by the fact that its director, Miranda Fricker, and the regular members of the executive committee, I'm a kind of irregular member, um, worked so hard to keep the show on the road. So I thank them for that. Today I'd like to give you just a, a glimpse of a, a wider picture about reasons for belief, perceptual knowledge, and justified belief. To make sure I get through the material, I'm going to read an abridged version of the printed text. I'll try to be as animated as I can, and I'll pause from time to time to comment on uh, various things. Future historians of philosophy might well be puzzled that mainstream epistemologists for so long took a certain conception of justified belief to be the explanatory central conception of justified belief. The conception I have in mind is that which is in play in discussion of Gettier cases, cases presented as instances of justified true belief that do not count as knowledge. The centrality accorded to this conception ought to seem puzzling, since it allows that a belief can be justified even if it rests on a false assumption. We have a conception of a belief being well-founded, justified because resting on a firm foundation. That conception does not permit a belief to be well-founded if it rests on a false assumption. To be justified in believing something in this sense amounts to having an adequate reason to believe it and believing it for that reason. Reasons to believe something, or more precisely, normative reasons to believe something, are, according to the view that I'm propounding, constituted by truths. I might take myself to have a reason to believe that, that it was freezing during the night in view of what seems to me to be frost on the ground. But if what looks like frost is a dusting of white ash, then I lack the reason I take myself to have. In that circumstance, assuming that no other relevant normative reason is in play, my belief that it was freezing during the night was not well-founded and in that way justified. Even so, there's a sense in which I would have a reason for believing as I did. My reason would be that, as I thought, there was frost on the grass. In this sense, the reason is a motivating, or perhaps better, explanatory reason, a reason for which I believe as I do. If the dusting of white ash is indistinguishable from frost from my point of view, then my belief might well have been reasonable, such that a reasonable person with an ability to recognize frost by sight might blamelessly hold in the circumstances. We may use the term justified for being reasonable if we like, but if we do, we should take care not to conflate reasonableness with well-foundedness. The good standing that the notion of reasonableness captures with respect to belief depends on the subject situation being to that subject in that circumstance indistinguishable from one 
in which the belief is well-founded. I would claim that our grasp of what reasonableness amounts to depends on our grasp of what well-foundedness amounts to. So from now on, when I speak of um, justification, when I speak without qualification of a belief's being justified, I shall mean that it's well-founded and thus founded on truths. It's not my aim here to give a general account of what's required for well-foundedness. I wish to register that there is such a thing and that it requires a belief to be based on truths and that it's different from and conceptually more basic than reasonableness. For a normative reason to believe that P, to justify me in believing that P, I must not only believe what constitutes the reason, but I would claim also know it. Anything less than knowledge is liable to be too readily vulnerable to doubt, prompted by the realization that what constitutes one's reason is not something one knows. Because of this vulnerability, what constitutes the reason could not contribute to providing a firm and stable foundation for other beliefs. I suspect that intuitions to the contrary stem from conflating reasonableness with well-foundedness. It's not in dispute here that a reasonable belief might rest on something less than knowledge. So the main elements of the account so far are as follows. And there, I should say there is a handout. It was in the, in the program. And uh, the conditions I'm about to give are on the handout. The main elements so far of the account of normative reasons for a belief are, one, that a belief is justified in the sense of being well-founded only if there's an adequate normative reason to believe it. Two, that normative reasons to believe something are constituted by truths. And three, that a normative reason to believe something justifies one in believing it only if it's constituted by a truth or truths that one knows. Now, I suppose the main theme of the picture, I, obviously in the scope of the paper, I've not... Uh, done enough to justify or support that picture and presenting the picture and the main aim of the talk is in a moment or two to consider whether issues about perception and the kind of justification for belief that arises out of perception pose a problem for that picture. There is a perspective on which it does pose such a problem. I'm going to argue that it doesn't pose that problem. Uh, But before I get to that, I want to say a little bit about uh, believing for a reason and believing for a reason that such and such. It seems clear that a normative reason to believe something can justify me in believing it only if I believe it for that reason. If I believe it for that reason, then what constitutes the reason will also constitute a motivating or explanatory reason for the belief. So I'd like to look more closely at what that amounts to, what it is to believe something for a reason. We need to accommodate the fact that we can believe things for bad reasons, that is, reasons that do not justify believing those things. It's convenient to introduce the notion of an adequate reason-giving relation, and this also is on the handout. I shall say that considerations C1 to Cn stand in an adequate reason-giving relation to the proposition that P, provided that were they true, they would constitute an adequate reason 
to believe that P. There will be occasions when the subject believes something for a reason and the considerations constituting the reason stand in an adequate reason-giving relation to what the subject believes, but some element in those considerations that's essential to their being adequately reason-giving is false. That gives us one type of bad reason. There's another type, since it's plausible that one can believe something for a reason that is bad because it does not stand in an adequate reason-giving relation to the thing believed. That can be the case even if what constitutes the reason are truths, obviously. So here's an example. Suppose I take a dim view of some colleague. Perish the thought that I've ever actually done that. Um, and I'd, in any case, like to emphasize that this is an entirely fictional example. And I use the first person only for stylistic reasons. <laughs> so I take a dim view of some colleague because on the grounds that he um, uh, shirks his responsibilities. My reason for believing this is that, as I suppose, he refuses to take on certain jobs. The truth of the matter is that he did refuse to take on those jobs when asked to, not because he generally shirks responsibilities, but because, unknown to me, he already had more than enough on his plate. My reaction was, let's say, due to prejudice on my part, against this colleague, I too readily took his refusal to be indicative of a general attitude towards taking on responsibilities. In such a case, it's still true that I believed what I did about this colleague for a reason, even though what constituted my reason did not stand in an adequate reason-giving relation to what I believed. Too easily, it might it have been the case that even though he refused to take on the jobs he was asked to, he is not one who shirks his responsibilities. Still, there's a sense in which the basis of my belief, notwithstanding that it's a, you know, we've got a bad reason here, there's still a sense in which the basis of my belief rationalizes it, in that to understand why it was formed, we have to take into account a consideration in the light of which I formed it, a consideration that I treated as a normative reason to believe as I did. It is not that the belief was formed solely because of factors that have nothing to do with the operation of the intellect. It's just that my prejudice distorted the intellect's operation in this case. The rationalization we have here is, as we might say, messy, because the basis of my belief does not stand in an adequate reason-giving relation to what I believe. Such cases pose a problem for attempting account of believing for a reason, according to which believing something for a reason is always a matter of believing it for what would be an adequate reason to believe it if it were true. Such an account is falsified by cases of messy rationalization. Yet it cannot be right that there's no constraints on believing for a reason, that anything could in principle be one's reason for believing something, no matter how irrelevant to the justification for believing that thing. If one believes that P, for the reason that, as one supposes, Q, one treats the consideration that Q as an adequate normative reason to believe that P. When one regards something as a reason to believe something else, one exploits one's understanding of the significance of what one takes to be the truth constituting the reason. Nonetheless, in such cases, what one treats 
as a reason to believe something must be a consideration in light of which it's intelligible that one should have formed or maintained the belief on its basis and so intelligible that one should have treated it as an adequate reason to believe. If the case is one in which the consideration constitutes an adequate reason to believe, then of course it'll be readily intelligible that the subject should have formed or maintained the belief that P in its light. But people are fallible. They sometimes reason poorly and can be subject to various kinds of motivational bias. So sometimes they believe things for bad reasons. Still, if it can so much as seem to a subject that a consideration constitutes an adequate reason to believe something, then it, along with other uh, with any other relevant factors, should enable us to understand how, from the subject's perspective, it could have seemed to provide an adequate normative reason to believe the thing in question. Uh, before I leave this section, if you're working with the full printed text, I'm towards the end of section two, I just want to touch on the locution believing for the reason that whatever. Often when we attribute to people a reason for which they do something or a reason for which they believe something, a motivating reason in either case, we imply that what constitutes this reason also constitutes a normative reason to do this thing or believe this thing as the case may be. That a person believes that it has been raining for the reason that everything outside is wet entails that everything outside is wet. If I say of someone, of someone that he believed that it had been freezing during the night because or for the reason that, as he thought, there was frost on the grass, what I say doesn't entail that there was frost on the grass. In this case, my use of the phrase, as he thought, serves to cancel the factivity of for the reason that. Um, this is uh, disputed. In a footnote to the full text, I refer to Jonathan Dancy, who doesn't treat um, for, for the reason that construction is uh, factive. So now I come to the, as it were, the main part of the story, which has got to do with uh, justification arising from perception. Um, the picture I've been sketching, we're on section three now, the picture I've been sketching is in keeping with Tim Williamson's suggestion that justification is primarily a status which knowledge can confer on beliefs that look good in its light. Against the background of mainstream epistemology, which urges us to think of knowledge as true belief that satisfies various conditions, this is apt to seem bizarre. The dominant strand has it that the conditions include being justified. If being justified in the central sense amounts to one's belief being well-founded, and if that requires that one's reasons for believing be constituted by what one knows, then there's no prospect of a reductive account of knowledge in terms that include justified true belief. But so much the worse for mainstream epistemology's reductive project. That by itself, of course, isn't going to cut much ice with mainstreamers, and in any case, we owe it to them to try to address uh, this and other problems which the picture that I've been sketching uh, give rise to. Remember what we're doing here. I remember the, the view about reasons and justification that I summarized in three clauses earlier on. 
we're thinking of a belief as being justified in the sense of being well-founded when it's founded on truth. And we're thinking of uh, such reasons as justifying one in believing something only when the truths are truths one knows. Now, an obvious source of concern has to do with perceptual knowledge and consideration of how perception enables beliefs to be justified. I take it that one of the main reasons why epistemologists have felt compelled not to tie justification for belief to reasons, conceived as in my earlier treatment, is that they've been unable to see how any such account can handle the justifications for belief with which perceptions furnish us. Why, why might you think... I mean, I suppose the... Um, I spell this out in the longer version of the paper. The worry has always been... You know, we tend to think of believing, believing for a reason in terms of believing one thing because you believe something else. But it strikes some people that when we think about perceptual knowledge, it's sort of phenomenologically immediate. You know, if I uh, see that and in that way know that, there's milk in the fridge. You know, I just open the door of the fridge, look inside. I see there's milk in the fridge. I know that there's milk in the fridge. It simply strikes me that there's milk in the fridge as I look in. It's not that I'm uh, arriving at this belief because of some prior consideration. There's a phenomenological immediacy to perceptual knowledge. And that, along with some other considerations, has led people to think, look, there must be a kind of justification that a belief can have that accrues not from truths, truths that one believes, but rather simply from experiences. And in mainstream epistemology, they're usually, the experiences are usually conceived to be metaphysically independent of what's in one's surroundings, one's immediate surroundings at any rate. So they've developed a view in which, um, you know, if I believe that a cube is red, then the justification derives, at least in part, from an experience as of something red, where that's understood to be an experience one could have, even if there were no red thing before us. Now, that actually, that's a view that I de- defended at some length in a, a book called Reasons and Experience, and I've rather taken against it. So <clears throat> I'm full of the zeal of a convert at the moment, uh, Whether some of you may think I would have been better sticking with the old story remains to be seen. I think there's a... Just to link it to the literature, I mean, some of you may be more familiar with uh, Jim Pryor's work, uh, The Skeptic and the Dogmatist. In that work and elsewhere, he puts forward a view um, in which he thinks of something he calls immediate justification, which is justification that derives immediately from experiences that one has. Now that's the kind of view that I'm reacting against. I think what we should do is, in this area is start not by thinking about justification but by thinking of knowledge. We start right away with knowledge. If I see the magpie in the garden, as I often do, a magpie in the garden, if I see the magpie in the garden and see that it's a magpie, How do I know that it's a magpie? I take it that seeing that the bird is a magpie 
just is a mode of knowing that it is. When I see the magpie, I see that and in that way know that it's a magpie from the way it looks. What enables me to know this in this circumstance is that the bird has a distinctive visual appearance and I have a certain visual recognitional ability. I'm able to recognize as mag magpies as magpies from their visual appearance, that is, the way they look. To have such an ability is to have command of a way of telling and so coming to know of magpies that they are magpies from the way they look. I have such an ability, of course, only in relation to a favorable environment, one such as ours, in which having the look of a magpie is a very highly reliable indicator of being a magpie. If I had been in an environment in which too many things uh, that look like magpies are fake magpies, things that look like magpies but aren't, then I would be unable to tell of any magpies there that they are magpies from the way they look. That seems to me to be the chief lesson of fake barn type examples. But as things are, I exercise the recognitional ability as I look at the bird. I see that and in that way tell that and thus know that the bird over there is a magpie. Now one thing I want to emphasize, I don't think I've emphasized it perhaps enough in the, even in the full address, although I say more about it elsewhere. I talk of telling that something is of a certain kind from the way it looks. And you can think of other examples with other sensory modalities. When I say from the way it looks, I don't mean, it's not, in, it's not entailed by that, that I must have taken in the way it looks at the level of belief or judgment. I mean, people can acquire, I mean, children do. I have a grandson of just over two who's recognizing lots of things, but I think has no notion of what it is for something to look a certain way. It doesn't operate with the concept of the way a thing looks or visually appears at all. It's perfectly able to tell from the look of a thing that it is of a certain kind. Um, it's, it, this is a point that Austin made some fuss about in uh, Other Minds many years ago. I think it was a fuss worth making. So it's not implied that you've got to have the resources to articulate what the appearance of a thing is, you know, conceptually, and so that you can take in the way it looks at the level of belief or judgment. I just emphasize that. Another thing I, um, I want to emphasize is that um, there's a tendency, I mean, if you're used to the complexities and, you know, Byzantine ramifications of mainstream epistemology, you're liable to think, look, you've not really said all that much about perceptual knowledge. You've said something very, very ordinary about perceptual knowledge. Surely there must be something more interesting to say about perceptual knowledge than that. Well, fortunately there is. It's just that I'm not saying it all in this address. There... That's not just a cheeky get-out. Let me just point to some of the areas that I think are underexplored and that need to, uh, to be explored much more fully. There's issues about what it is to exercise an ability of any kind, and in particular, what is it to exercise a recognitional ability. Um, on the view that uh, I hold, you exercise... 
uh, an ability to phi only if you phi. So, you know, if I, I can make a judgment that is, in a sense, directed at recognition. One needs to spell out what that involves. You can make a judgment that's directed at recognition, but which fails to be recognition. It might fail to be recognition because you don't actually have the requisite recognitional ability. More interesting cases are ones in which you have the recognitional ability but fail to exercise it. It might be that you simply mistake a thing as being of a certain kind when it's not. There might be some background considerations that explain this. Um, so there is a success thesis associated with recognitional abilities. You don't exercise the ability unless you, uh, unless you affect recognition, the relevant recognition. I, I say this kind of thing many times, and it's, it's often met with a huge amount of resistance. And the, I take some time in another paper, which, to which I think I refer in the full text, to show that you can situate this account within a, what seems to me to be a plausible, more general theory of ability that also involves the success thesis. Some of you may think of examples that put a, a strain on that, in which case we can um, address them. Okay, so recognition abilities are not mysterious. They're, in a sense, very familiar things. And it's, it's that that makes one think that one isn't saying very much when one relates perceptual knowledge to recognition. But I've just tried to flag up that there are debatable issues about the individuation and character of recognition abilities that are of themselves of some interest. So we, we focus on these kinds of things rather than all sorts of other things that are more generally looked at. Now, as I've said, cases in which... Uh, oh, let, me just, let me just emphasize this again. I mean, I've said it already, but just to make sure it's clear and on the table. When I talk of affecting recognition, that's an, an act or episode that, in which that happens is one in which knowledge is acquired. Rec, rec, when I see that something is so, I affect recognition uh, of something as being a certain way. I may recognize it as being of some kind or as having some property. It might be quite a complex property. It can be relational properties as well. Or it might be that I see an individual as being some specified uh, individual. When I do these things, that's what I mean by recognize it to be some way. And I'm claiming that recognizing something to be some way is nothing less than uh, knowledge. Now, we're not, it's important that we're not fallible. Sorry, important that we're not fallible. <laughs> You're getting tired, Al. Uh, the, it's important that we're uh, fallible in relation to our recognition abilities. But it, it's important for the story I want to tell that that fallibility doesn't consist in there being defective exercises of a recognition ability, if what that means is exercises that are genuinely exercises of the ability, but the outcome of which isn't actually recognition. Okay? But there's nothing, there's no kind of infallibilism there. We are fallible, we, but the fallibility doesn't consist in uh, exercising the ability and failing to recognize. It consists in not 
exercising the ability, roughly speaking, whenever we aspire to do so. Um, there is some work in, in which, um, very recent work by John McDowell, in which he's talking about fallibility, and he says lots of things I agree with, but he, he also brings in the notion of a defective exercise of an ability. Well, that does mean an exercise of the ability that isn't uh, a case of knowledge acquisition. I don't think he needs that for his purposes, and I'm not absolutely sure it's something he um, sticks to. Now, so, a view about perception knowledge. As I said, much can be said about um, recognition abilities that I've not gone into here. None of it requires that in explicating what it takes to recognize a thing, we need to advert to reasons or justification for believing the thing to be what we recognize it to be. Now, usually when people exercise recognition abilities, it will also be the case that they have justifications for believing in things constituted by reasons. I just don't, and, and most mature uh, people will, will, will have such abilities. So de facto, it will nearly always be the case that when people exercise recognition abilities, there are reasons and justifications in the offing. But I don't see any reason why, why one should suppose it to be a necessary truth that whenever you exercise a recognition ability and acquire knowledge uh, through the, in, in the manner that I've been explaining, you must necessarily have a reason for belief. Then you, you've got a, you, you might say, well, what about your entitlement? Surely if, you're, if you know something, you're entitled to believe it. It all depends what you mean by entitlement. All I'm saying is it doesn't necessarily follow that you need to have a justification in the mode of justification that I was explaining right at the start. That's not to cast doubt on the idea that exercising a recognition ability of the sort we possess is a manifestation of our rationality. For rationality has as much to do with being able to get a grip on reality as it has to do with being able to reason well and maintain coherence among our beliefs and other attitudes. The most fundamental way in which we get a grip on reality is through the exercise of perceptual recognitional abilities. But of course, reasons must come in, into the picture. And they do come into the picture. In the envisaged magpie situation, I would have a reason for believing that the bird is a magpie. I see that it is. How can this be? We're liable to think that the central cases of believing uh, for a reason are ones in which one comes to believe something because one believes something else, that which constitutes the reason. So in this picture, when I believe that it's been raining on the grounds that the streets are wet, I come to believe that it's been raining because I believe that the streets are wet. But as I said earlier, perceptual knowledge is phenomenologically immediate. I see that the bird is a magpie. It simply strikes me that it's a magpie. Indeed, it could not be that I come to believe that the bird is a magpie because I believed that I saw that it was. For part of what it is to see that it was is to believe that it was. That's sometimes challenged, but I'm 
sticking with it. It might seem otherwise, since my belief in this case is not brought about because I'm moved by the consideration that I see that the bird is a magpie. But we need to abandon the view that whenever someone believes something for the reason that P, one comes uh, to believe that thing uh, moved by the consideration that P. Uh, perhaps for that, I mean, so in what sense then? How, how then are we to make sense of the idea of uh, an explanatory reason for the belief? Can it be granted that, it, that I see that P is a reason for me to believe that P? How can it be my reason for believing that P? I want to say that that I, that I see that the bird is a magpie can be my reason, in a sense, my reason for believing it to be a magpie, in a sense that entails that were I to cease to believe that I see that it's a magpie, then all else equal, I'd cease to believe that it's a magpie. And any pressure to doubt that it's a magpie would be resisted by me so long as I take myself to see or to have seen that it is or was a magpie. So on the picture then, the idea is that this is a kind of, you know, that one sees, it's not in view of the fact that one sees that, it, that it's a magpie, that one comes to believe that it is. That makes no sense at all. But it can still be my reason for believing that it's a magpie because it can be a sustaining, can be a sustaining reason. You get these beliefs simultaneously. You're not led to one because you acquire another. The beliefs are held simultaneously but in virtue of the various relations in which the counterfactual relations in which they stand, some can be sustain others. And that's the sort of picture I want to put forward. Now, you may be saying, okay, uh, we need an account of how we have access to such factive reasons. How do we have access to those reasons? Under the picture I've been presenting, um, reasons of this kind will be available to me to serve as a reason justifying me in believing that the bird is a magpie, only if it's something I know. So, you know, that's got a strong requirement. How is it that I, granted that I do see that it's a magpie, how do I know that I see that it's a magpie? And on the account I want to give, it's not, in, introspection has got nothing to do with this. We know these things just as we know that things are magpie by looking outwards. So we know by looking outwards that it's a thing that one sees, indeed a magpie that one sees. And further, one knows by looking out, outwards that it's a thing one sees to be a magpie. It's not... Um, that's, that's a way in which you can have a kind of reflective access to factive reasons. It's not by looking inwards, it's by looking outwards. Now, I, I must confess to uh, an insufficiency, not only in the handout, but I fear also in the written text. There I give the impression that it suffices that um, you know, you've got the ability to tell that it's a magpie and the ability to tell that it's something you see and I kind of give the impression that a monster being able to tell that one sees that it's a magpie. I think that isn't 
quite right. The best one can say about it is that it's uh, loose. It's important, too, that you've got the ability not just to tell that you see it, but that you can, the ability to tell that you can see it to be such and such. And, of course, in this situation, that involves the ability to tell that one sees it to be a magpie. Now, the upshot is that the justification for believing what we know perceptually doesn't pose a problem for the view that a reason to believe something justifies us in believing it only if it's constituted by a truth we know. Now, what am I doing for time? Another ten minutes, maybe? Oh, right. I can be expansive. Whoa. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> you, um, just want to say a little bit more. It, it, it's really... Let me just emphasize something I said a little earlier. Um, there will be many who don't like the account that I'm giving of perceptual knowledge just because it explicates perceptual knowledge without invoking notions of reasons or justification. Um, it, it seems to me, though, that one can... I mean, why would people reject such a view... They reject it because you think, look, there's a really intimate relation between knowing something and having reasons to believe it. And of course it's true that there's a really intimate relation between knowing things and having a justification for believing it. But the intimate relation isn't the relation of a necessary connection. What I want to say is, I've said, as I've said already, but I want to just underline, the picture is that normal adults with the normal conceptual resources who have the ability to recognize something of being of some kind right, will also have the ability to recognize uh, of things that they are things they see and recognize of things that they are things they see to be of such and such a kind. Right. So these things normally go together. But all I'm saying is I... I I really don't think there's any necessity in the connection. We can account for, if you like, explain away the intuitions that lead people to think that justification is absolutely essential to knowledge. Now, I want to turn to the fourth section on uh, reflective access to reasons and reflective knowledge. We have reflective access to reasons for belief that perception makes available to us. That's in the way that I've been outlining. This is important because an ability to reflect on our reasons and recognize them to be good reasons is crucial for evaluating our own beliefs and judgments. It's also important for the business of presenting our reasons to others with a view to explaining or defending those beliefs and judgments in the face of queries or criticisms. There are various ways in which one pr can present something as a reason sufficient to justify one in believing that P. Asked why I believe that P, I may simply say that Q. 
Though in that case, I don't explicitly state that, as I see it, that Q is a reason sufficient to justify believing that P. I presuppose that it is, though, and I give it to be understood that I take it to be. Similarly, if I try to persuade someone that P, in view of, as I see it, the fact that Q, I would presuppose that Q and give it to be understood that I take it to be a reason to believe that P. On the general understanding of normative reasons in play in this discussion, which I take to be implicit in common sense, this means that when I present, as I see it, the fact that Q as a reason to believe that P, I give it to be understood that I know that Q. The practice of presenting reasons for belief and persuading others that one has adequate reasons for one's beliefs depends on our often enough having and being able to justify the claim that we have, the knowledge we give it to be understood that we have in presenting a reason. Some, I suspect, will take this condition to be fearfully demanding, assuming perhaps that what counts as knowledge is elusive. Yet, reflective knowledge is routine. We often know something and know that we know it through knowing how we know it. One of the advantages I claim for the general approach to perceptual knowledge that I take is that in that approach it's not mysterious that perceptual knowledge can be reflective. When I know that the bird is a magpie from the way it looks, I have a reason for so believing, constituted by the fact that I see that it is. This fact also serves to explain how I know that the bird is a magpie. Since it's a fact that I know, I can know how I know that the bird is a magpie. The fact is accessible to me, though not in the way commonly envisaged under mainstream internalist conceptions of justified belief, which restrict the reflectively accessible to what one has in mind, this being conceived to be metaphysically independent of one's surroundings. Facts of the sort in question, facts as to what we perceive to be so, are available to us through what we perceive. That, you know, that's the essence of what I mean talking about. Just on this theme of knowledge being elusive, it, it, it does seem to me to be extremely important. You know, there's a, the, the, if you're in the sort of... If you're, if you're doing mainstream epistemology, even if you're not trying to get around Getty problems, you might still, as it were, think within that framework because you're thinking, look, the, the thing we have to sort out first in epistemology is justification. And if you get frustrated about trying to get a tight enough uh, conditions for knowledge that are not getty-risable, then you might say, as some have, look, really, let's forget knowledge. We don't really need knowledge at all. That's not the thing that matters. What we need is justified belief. Prominent philosophers have said as much. I think Russell says that. So. Somebody calls it Russell's retreat. I can't remember who. Um, now, I think that's really wrong. And, of course, lots of other people will agree with this because anyone who thinks that um, there's a knowledge condition on assertion, I don't want to think whether that's right or not. I certainly think there's a knowledge condition on what I would call telling. And I suspect that what's generally 
discussed this assertion is something that I would call telling, where that's informing someone of something. Um, if there's a knowledge condition of assertion and there's a sort of practice that conforms to uh, the, the um, prescription not to tell someone that P unless you know that P, Practice is to be an up-and-running practice that's going to be useful. It must be the case that often enough people can tell that they know things. And if you make knowledge such a difficult and complex matter, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to see how people can be reasonably confident that they, far less justifiably confident, that they have knowledge. But it seems to me that knowledge isn't as elusive as it's been made out to be. Now, you may say, look, it's one thing to make a case for this that's got at least some degree of plausibility for perceptual knowledge, but there's an awful lot of other knowledge beyond that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think, however, that the kind of approach that I've been taking can be extended to um, what I call knowledge from indicators. I mean, knowing that there's um, combustion from knowing that there's smoke or you know, knowing that the fuel in one's fuel tank is roughly uh, half, sorry, that one's fuel tank is roughly half full from knowing that the gauge reads half full, or knowing from uh, tire marks on the road that a vehicle has skidded on the road. It, it, I think a case can be made for thinking that um, that kind of knowledge is very, very like perceptual knowledge. It's not, not exactly the same, but it's very, very like perceptual knowledge in many ways, which might, might be why Dretzky, uh, in his very fine book, Seeing and Knowing, um, talked about secondary seeing or secondary epistemic seeing in connection with these indicator cases. I think you can extend general approach to testimony. I'm merely gesturing here. I think the outcome of some of these considerations might be that while we know lots of things, we don't know quite as much as a lot of epistemologists think we know. Um, quite a lot of what we know, uh, I mean, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's serious questions about whether we should talk about knowledge in the more theoretical regions of science. Uh, we can nonetheless know lots of things that are relevant to science, for instance, how a certain theory stands up in relation to lots of things we know. We can have uh, good estimates uh, on matters like that. Now, okay, just to conclude, um, I've been emphasizing the importance of reflective knowledge for the practice of presenting one's reasons for belief. A case can be made for thinking that reflective knowledge is the goal of inquiry. Remember, I'm thinking of reflective knowledge as you have reflective knowledge that P, when not only do you know that P, um, you also know that you know that P. I'm not saying that necessarily if you know that P, then you know that you know that P, but in lots of cases, we do have reflective knowledge, and just as well. A case can be made for thinking that Reflective knowledge is the goal of inquiry into whether something is so. Inquiring into whether it's raining by looking out the window is a task, albeit a trivial one for most of us. 
If I'm engaged in such an inquiry, I need to be able to tell whether I've successfully completed the task, which amounts to telling whether I've grasped the truth of the matter. Simply believing that it's raining would fall short of determining that I grasp the truth of the matter, even if it's, the truth is that it's raining. Properly to terminate inquiry, I must know that the truth has been grasped and so the matter settled. I can know this by knowing that I know it's raining. For by looking out of the window, I can tell from what I see both that it's raining and that I see that it's raining. And since I understand that seeing that it's raining is a way of knowing that it's raining, I know that I know that it's raining. If I had a merely true belief that it's raining, then in the nature of the case, I would have lacked a reason to believe that it's raining, and so would hardly tell that I grasped the truth. Even if I knew that I had a justified in the sense of reasonable belief, that weaker notion, even if I had a justified belief in that sense that it's raining, and knew what supplied me with the justification, what I would thereby know would fall short of establishing that I'd grasped the truth. For in the nature of the case, for all I knew, what supplied the justification might not have constituted a solid foundation for the belief that it's raining. As it is, in this bizarre case, banal case, I can readily know that I grasp the truth, since I can know from what I see that I see that, and in that way know that it's raining. Thank you.